Before we start the show, I want to tell you about a new program for Yale. You listen to The Interchange because you want the deepest insights on the energy transition, but how do you put them into practice? Well, the Yale program in financing and deploying clean energy is focused on exactly that. Through this online program, Yale University is training working professionals in clean energy policy, finance, and technology, and helping them understand how to accelerate the deployment of clean energy worldwide faster. To connect with Yale expertise, grow your professional network, and deepen your impact, visit the link in the show notes and apply before March 14th, 2021. Green Tech Media Podcast. Two places electricity would have a very hard time touching in almost any realistic scenario one can imagine is really, really high heat processes where you just need a ton of energy really quickly. And frankly, where the heat you you would be getting to would, would melt most electrical input equipment. Um, and the other is super, super energy density requirement and uses like, like aviation. A battle is brewing among electrification, hydrogen, and carbon capture. This week, it's deep decarbonization, infinity war. I'm Shale Khan. And this is The Interchange. So for the past few months, I've been working on something new at Energy Impact Partners, which is my day job. I'm a partner at the venture capital firm. Unfortunately, can't say a lot about it yet. More on that at a future date. But it has led me and my colleagues to spend quite a lot of time looking at innovations that are intended to solve some of the harder problems of decarbonization. Namely, if we assume that we will find our way to a zero carbon electricity grid, how do we decarbonize everything else? As it stands today, electricity has something like a 20% market share of final energy consumption, which was a number that really stood out to me when I first learned it. That means that 80% of our final energy demand is not currently electricity. So even if we decarbonize electricity, what do we do with the other 80%? And as we at EIP have started looking around, we keep running into the same pattern. There's a brewing battle for many of these harder to abate sectors. And the contenders are pretty consistent across those sectors. It's a battle among electricity, direct electrification, hydrogen, and hydrogen-derived fuels, and then carbon capture. And that battle seems like it's going to be playing out for the next couple of decades. We see this over and over again in sectors from aviation to heavy industry to heavy-duty transportation to all these other ways in which we use energy that are not currently electric today. So my EIP colleague, Andy Lubershane, who regular listeners of this podcast will know from multiple previous appearances, uh, he and I have been batting this around a lot internally. How can we predict which of these three contender technologies are going to win out in which sectors? And obviously in our case, since EIP is a venture capital firm, what can that tell us about which companies are poised to capture this massive opportunity in the decarbonization of the entire global economy? So here's Andy and I talking about how this battle may in fact play out. It's deep decarbonization, infinity war. Let's go. So Andy, something that I'm certain our listeners don't know about you is that you are a board game super aficionado, so much so that you have uh, created at least one board game. Is it only one? 
Only one. Yeah, only one at this point worth mentioning. Okay. Well, uh, do you want to mention it? Let's let's give it a plug. <laughs> yeah. Well, I made a game. It's called Monstrology, um, and I'm actually thinking of publishing it more seriously at some point this year. So more to come on that one. Uh, advertising on the interchange, of course. That's right. Yeah. So uh, I have had the pleasure of playing Monstrology. It's a great game. Thank you for giving it to me. Uh, and so I think we want to try to use your board game prowess, your board game design prowess in this conversation. So uh, let's do it this way. If you're designing Deep Decarbonization Infinity War as a board game, how would you lay out the uh, the rules and the objective of the game? <laughs> so um, I would say the, the objective of the game, of, of course, is to decarbonize all of society. Um, but that means that the game is played on a couple of different battlegrounds. Uh, the first battleground is in the power sector, where we're, we're trying to decarbonize the 20% of end-use electricity demand that is currently, or end-use energy demand, I should say, that is currently electrified. Um, and, and that battleground actually is one that's already fairly advanced, because we, we've already been blessed with this pretty clear pathway for getting quite a bit of the way there on power sector decarbonization. You know, the past two decades of, of incremental in, innovation in wind and solar, and more recently, lithium-ion battery technology, have made the goal of 80% clean power production for those already electrified uh, energy end uses pretty easy to envision. There, there's definitely some, some big, big bumps, certainly along that road, such as a massive increase in electric transmission, which I think we'll come back to. Um, but that battlefield is a less interesting game. So I think the one we want to talk more about um, are the battlefields that consist of the 80% of final energy consumption that aren't currently electrified. Um, so those are the ones that I think make for the most interesting board game. And, and um, I think those battlefields fall into a few different buckets. Okay. So the Infinity War takes place uh, beyond the stuff that we talk about a lot, the like power sector decarbonization itself. This is where there's still a lot more open questions. Here's what I think we want to do. Let's start by talking about the uh, the game board, the battlegrounds in which this uh, this war is going to take place. Then we should talk about the contenders who's actually competing for decarbonizing and transforming these sectors individually. Then we should talk about who we think the winners are actually going to be in each of these sectors. Uh, and then finally, we should talk about why this is not really a competition after all. So let's start with the battleground itself. Um, I think at the high level, you and I have talked about this, there's probably three big categories of battlegrounds, playing fields on which we're going to see this war take place, right? Yes. So so let's call them game boards. There's three battle battleground game boards at play here. Um, and, and I'll describe a little bit about each of them. So the first battleground um, is the one that I would call sort of the presumptive nominee for electrification. And that battleground includes two end uses, two big categories of end uses that at first seem pretty dissimilar, but actually have some pretty clear similarities. So the first is light duty vehicles, and the second is low grade heat for buildings, which means basically space heating for buildings and water heating. And what those two energy end uses actually have in common is that they both require very highly distributed delivery of energy. And then they also are similar in that in both cases, there are very clear and immediate um, efficiency gains to be had from electrification. 
The other thing that's similar about both of them is energy density and flow rate is important for both of those end uses. Um, and it seems tough, but it also seems achievable to reach the density and flow rates that are needed with current technology in electric distribution wires and at least near-term technology in batteries. So again, in this battleground, electrification starts out with a lot of pieces on the board. Right. So we'll get back to the contenders in a minute, but you know, there's a sort of if you're if you're uh if you're making early bets, then certainly, you know, light medium duty transportation is a good example of like I think everybody who's listening probably knows that you know, there, there's a, a decent head start for just pure electrification here, but we haven't actually talked about the other competitors yet. So I do want to come back to it. All right. So that's category one, light duty transportation and space heating. What's category two? So category two includes uh, some other end uses. It includes heavier duty transport, which I would classify as anything from long haul trucks to big ships to even aviation. And then it also includes industrial heating, which uh, consists of higher grade heat in the hundreds of thousands to degrees Fahrenheit range. And so what these end uses have in common um, is that they require super, super high flow rates for energy and uh, density of storage in, in the transport applications. So you need really concentrated energy, basically, in these end uses. Um, you've got to get a ton of energy into, for example, a glass furnace to melt glass um, or a truck really fast. And in moving vehicles, you need to store that energy in a small amount of volume and a small amount of weight. And so what that means is that in these end uses, there's not really a line of sight today based on current technology for easy electrification. So what defines, uh, just to repeat it, what defines this second space, heavy duty transportation, some industrial heating, shipping, aviation, um, energy density is a big issue and they need a lot of energy very quickly. Yeah. Energy concentration, lots quickly and you need to hold it in a very small space. Okay, so category one, uh, high energy density, but very distributed. Category two, very high energy density, but also really high flow rates. It needs a lot more energy uh, very quickly. What's category three? The third category is e kind of even weirder. It's, it's the category of uh, primarily industrial end uses in which fossil fuels currently serve as both an energy source, mostly for producing heat, and also as some kind of feedstock chemical or some kind of reactant in a specific chemical process. So the examples here, the big examples are chemicals, petrochemicals, for example, where fossil fuel is the biggest feedstock, um, or cement and steel in which specific types of fossil fuel have played a super important role in the underlying process for, uh, for decades. And I guess what I'd say about all the battlegrounds um, is they're, they're obviously very different, which is why I think it's useful to segment them in that way. And, and I think we can expect pretty different winners and losers and different sort of areas of competition, but also cooperation among different um, modes of energy delivery um, to win the day. And so, you know, a lot of the investment we're seeing today in kind of fundamental innovation is likely to come to a head in, across all three of these battlegrounds later this decade. Right. Okay. So th this gets to why I think we're having this conversation now. So you and I have been exploring all of these spaces uh, with our colleagues at EIP. We've been talking to all of the innovative startups and many of the incumbents in these spaces. And I think we've both noticed this pattern, 
which is that you know, in, in all of the um, markets where there's still some question about how we're going to decarbonize, like I'll set light duty vehicles aside. I don't think there's much of a question there at this point. You know, fuel cell buffs can argue with me all they want, but, you know, we're going to transition to electric vehicles for light duty transportation. You set that aside, most of the rest of these sectors, there's still an open question. And in, in almost all of them, um, there appears to be a sort of multiple pathways, and those pathways are actually pretty similar across the different sectors. So we've sort of boiled them down to three primary contenders, which I think are universal across these sectors. So the first one you've already alluded to a few times, which is direct electrification, just electrify this. And I think this is the one that probably has gotten like the most attention historically because, and I've even said this before, my heuristic for how to solve climate change has always been decarbonize the power sector, electrify everything that you can, and then kind of like pick up the rest of the pieces. And I think electrify everything has become a bit of a mantra. And so electrification is probably the most well understood, but let's talk about electricity and what you know, imagine now that we're playing your board game and uh, electricity is one of the contenders, like what are its strengths? What are its plus points or whatever? And what are its weaknesses? <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, so there's going to be, there's going to be, uh, you know, probably three to four pieces that will be waging war across these, these game boards and electric electricity does come out as a strong and, and dominant one, at least at the outset, because it has a lot of advantages. Um, um, but there are some challenges as well. So the, the biggest advantage is kind of what you mentioned, which is it's the simplest pathway in some ways. We know how to, again, decarbonize most of the power sector. And we can, you know, if we can build enough transmission and distribution lines, pump that energy straight from the wind and the sun into lots of different end uses. One challenge that emerges, of course, initially um, <clears throat> that we'll talk more about is that we have to add hundreds of miles of transmission and distribution lines to get all that energy from the wind and the sun to these disparate end uses. But for distribution of energy, you know, at the end of, of the system in particular, one of electricity's great strengths is it's already really good at reaching all of these super disparate end uses because it does, because it has to. It has to reach every home and business out there already. Um, that said, where it might struggle is upgrading that system of delivery, the electric distribution system, to get to much higher rates of energy flow, um, which actually in some ways pipelines to deliver another one of the energy delivery mechanisms, we'll talk about hydrogen, can do more easily. Um, and then, of course, the challenge for electricity, uh, another big challenge beyond light-duty vehicles is storing enough electricity in a concentrated enough space to power something bigger and heavier or something that needs to fly. You know, best-in-class lithium-ion batteries today are, are north of 250 watt-hours per kilogram, um, that's, you know, still much lower, way, way, way lower than fossil fuels and lower than, you know, most other kind of molecular uh, forms of energy storage. Yeah, I think of the sort of challenges for electricity, you, you basically describe them like, and none of these are necessarily insurmountable. So we'll come back to it. But, you know, the things that electricity is less perfectly suited toward really high flow rates, really high density and really hot heat. Exactly. Right. All of those things are the, are the, and those are the things that define the sectors that we're describing, which is why they're the sectors that are not already electrified, right? Like that, that's the whole purpose. Otherwise they would already be using electricity. Right. Right. And, and that actually brings up another advantage of electricity. That's a little bit subtler. Um, 
and, and not yet maybe fully realized in all of these sectors, but potentially realizable, which is that electricity, electric driven processes often end up more efficient for a variety of reasons. And, and you can see, again, that's true in that first battleground where uh, in light duty vehicles, an electric motor can be north of 90% efficient from electric energy into movement um, compared to an internal combustion engine vehicle, which is maybe 20 to 30% in some vehicles. And then in space heating, electric heat pumps are typically about the same amount more efficient, two to three times more efficient um, than a furnace or a boiler that's just combusting fossil fuel. And so there's that efficiency benefit that, of, of electricity that's been realized in those two end uses, and it's possible we'll find ways of realizing it in other end uses as well. All right. So electricity is the first contender, arguably maybe the uh, in co- maybe the, the strongest coming in, I guess. You know, the line is strongest for, for electricity, at least when it comes to decarbonization, but it, it's not alone. So second emerging contender um, is hydrogen and then also some hydrogen derived fuels. So let's talk about hydrogen's strengths and weaknesses. Right. So hydrogen is an intermediate fuel. You can make it in a bunch of different ways. <clears throat> Currently, it's made in a, in a carbon-intensive process, um, steam methane reformation. But you can also make it um, clean, uh, uh, zero or at least very low carbon, via kind of two means. One is was green hydrogen, what's often called green hydrogen, uh, which is hydrogen made from clean electricity put through a process called electrolysis. Um, and then there's blue hydrogen, uh, which refers to hydrogen that's made from natural gas, but where the carbon is captured and sequestered in some way through the process. So the, the carbon atoms are stripped off and you get hydrogen atoms that are clean because you're dealing with the carbon. So the, the benefits of hydrogen as this intermediate fuel um, are pretty obvious. They're better flow rate and better density than electricity. Um, and for anyone that's a hydrogen aficionado and has been over the years, those are the two big reasons why you would move to hydrogen instead of electricity. The other more nuanced reason or more subtle reason, I suppose, is that it's historically been cheaper to build pipelines to move molecules Uh, at least over a significantly long distance than it has been to build electric power lines, large high voltage transmission lines. And, you know, typically that's been on the order of three times cheaper, at least in recent decades over long distances. One thing I'll say, though, is that's over long distances at a highly distributed level. If you're looking, once you get energy into an urban environment and you want to move it around to homes and businesses and charging or fueling stations, um, that's where the the benefit of doing it in a pipeline sort of starts to fall away. And there's not much of a difference between electricity and and pipelines. But to move lots of energy over long distances, there's going to be an advantage for something like hydrogen. It also has the benefit of being you know, easily stored. There's some, you could argue over this, right? Because hydrogen storage is not super straightforward because it's so flammable and you have to liquefy it or whatever. But, um, you know, you don't face the same storage challenge that you do with electricity needing to build batteries. Hydrogen is a liquid fuel or a gaseous fuel. um, So it could be stored just as natural gases or other liquid fuels. Right, exactly. And that, that comes back to density. You can store about four times as much energy in the same space uh, 
with hydrogen as you can currently in a lithium-ion battery, for example. I think there's one other advantage of hydrogen, which is its uh, ability to be used as a feedstock. Right, exactly. The the one other major advantage of hydrogen is that it's hydrogen. Um, it's an element. And so if you need more hydrogen atoms, it's it's literally the only option. And so it's probably going to be a good option for things that um, need hydrogen itself or need to pick up other atoms along the way to serve as a feedstock. Do you want to give an example of that for people who aren't steeped in hydrogen world? Yeah, one one example would be ammonia. So if you want to make ammonia, which is nitrogen plus hydrogen, you need the hydrogen first, um, and then you need to put it through uh, put it through an, a different process. But um, and, and actually, ammonia is an interesting one because ammonia is both sort of an end use chemical for agriculture in itself, and it can also potentially be another intermediate fuel that's even more dense than hydrogen. Right. People are, there's a lot of excitement, uh, I think, particularly in Europe around using ammonia as the fuel to, um, for maritime applications for, for ships and so on. So we're counting ammonia as an example of uh, within this hydrogen contender category. Okay. So first contender, direct electrification. Second contender, hydrogen and a bunch of hydrogen adjacent things like ammonia. Let's talk about the third and final contender, which is a sector that I think uh, has gone through significant ups and downs in the public consciousness over the past decade or so, but is having a bit of a resurgence now with a new spin on it, which is carbon capture. And then, you know, carbon capture plus either utilization or sequestration. So let's talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the CCS world. Absolutely. Yeah. And so I think we need to separate the the CCS game pieces into two categories, pretty obviously. There's point source carbon capture, and then there's uh, direct or ambient air capture. So, you know, point source capture can be added to really any reasonably large emitter of carbon with a reasonably high portion of carbon in its emissions, say 5% or more, maybe even a little bit lower than that. And technology seems to be gradually, with every um, round of of pilot and demonstration projects that that are built, it seems to be getting better at removing carbon at a gradually lower cost from somewhat less concentrated effluent, which is good. Um, and another upside of CCS is that uh, the cost can be offset potentially in some cases by using that carbon, as you alluded to. So um, today, for the most part, that that generally means pumping CCS underground to sadly unearth more carbon faster in the form of enhanced oil recovery. Um, but longer term, it could mean providing carbon molecules as a feedstock for plastics along, alongside hydrogen, most likely, um, and uh, for other long-lived materials that can be more or less counted as sequestered from, or sequestered from an atmospheric standpoint. Um, but that said, you know, I would say realistically, if CCS gets to scale, if CCS is going to be one of the big winners on any one of these game boards, we can probably only count on the U, on the utilization component, to help it reach that scale cost-effectively, not as an enormous long-term revenue stream for all kinds of CCS. A pause here to talk about a new program from Yale University that is going to be of particular interest to our listeners. 
So look, in this time of COVID, you're looking at ways that you can expand your knowledge set. Some of that is remote. And Yale University has put together a remote course to bring together professionals from all over the world to learn more about policy, finance, clean energy, deployment, uh, technology, and put it together in one package that can help working professionals expand their careers and their networks. It's there to help inspire action on climate change, to help understand how to accelerate deployment at scale, to get clarity on training and building up your network. The world urgently needs leaders with capacity in the areas of policy, finance, and technology, and that is you. And that is precisely why the Yale Center for Business and the Environment has drawn on its vast network of professionals and on the expertise of the Yale faculty to offer a unique program, marrying academic rigor with practical skills. Learn more about the certificate by clicking through the link in the show notes. And remember, you have to apply by March 14th, 2021. That's the Yale program in financing and deploying clean energy. Check it out. So the advantages of carbon capture are fairly obvious. You don't need to replace all of the infrastructure in any one of these sectors that we've built at all. You can continue to operate existing infrastructure until the end of its useful life. You don't need to transform any surrounding infrastructure. Like it's it's the easiest thing. You just attach carbon capture either directly to the point source of emissions to smokestacks or whatever it might be, or you effectively offset your emissions via either direct air capture or some other form of carbon removal. So this is the one that like requires you know, the least transformative change. The downsides to it are, one, you know, it can be viewed often as sort of like a fake half step if you attach some degree of carbon capture to some facilities and that, you know, is viewed as giving you an excuse to continue to operate other ones. So it's sort of like politically fraught. But also to your point, it's like inherently more expensive, right? Because you're just doing exactly what you were doing and now you're adding carbon capture to it. And so the only way to get around, whereas these other pathways, electricity and hydrogen both, at least have a roadmap to someday potentially being cheaper and perhaps better for other reasons as well. Now, they may not be today, but the long-term vision is, you know, if you're going to electrify transportation, of eventually, you know, electric vehicles are going to be cheaper and better, um, whereas carbon capture doesn't offer that promise. Now, the only little nuance to that is this emerging world of carbon utilization. So if you have some useful purpose for all that carbon that you capture, and that useful purpose is valuable enough, the the you know revenue you're able to yield from it is high enough that it pays for the cost of the carbon capture itself, now maybe you're in a different ballgame. All right, so this is our, so now we've, we've laid out the game, I think, right? Which is we have these sort of three categories of sectors we're trying to decarbonize. And we have these three contenders for how to decarbonize each of those sectors. And the, the reason we're having this conversation is that we just like keep seeing this play out. I've noticed this over and over again. Like we look at a bunch of companies in one of these sectors and there's some that are pursuing a direct electrification pathway, some that are pursuing a hydrogen pathway and some that are offering some version of carbon capture or carbon removal. And I, I just think I'm seeing this like rinsed and repeated across sectors right now. So I think the important question to us is, can we predict which technologies are gonna win in which of these markets and what will drive that? Um, so maybe the way to do that is to go back to the things that make each of these groupings of sectors unique. And then I think we should actually just like give an example of one of these sectors and talk through how it might look. But let, let's first go back to what are the things that each of these three battlegrounds 
need? And what does that tell us about which of these technologies is going to be most suitable? So in, in that regard, electrification clearly has its swim lanes already, which is that first battleground I described. Um, others will probably emerge for electricity, but you know the nature of electricity is it has to go specific process by specific process where the combination of, of an electrical input and some other technology um, can do something better or more efficient or more precise in some way that's been done before to, to yield something cost effective um, that gets the job done. You know, a good example of this is steelmaking, um, where electricity has historic, historically not been considered a likely um, winner, except potentially in recycled steel. Um, but where, you know, new technology, there's a company that's fairly well known, Boston Metal, um, might be able to produce steel cost effectively and in some cases better given this electrical process. Yeah, exactly. So steel making is one good example to run through. So, but in general, you know, the point that you're making is that sort of electricity has some clear winning markets. The rest of them, it's going to be sort of piece by piece to figure out. Exactly. Exactly. And, and one area I think, you know, two, two places electricity would have a very hard time touching in almost any realistic scenario one can imagine is really, really high heat processes where you just need a ton of energy really quickly. And frankly, where the heat you you would be getting to would, would melt most electrical input equipment. Um, and the other is super, super energy density requirement um, and uses like, like aviation, where there's no, there's no next generation battery on any roadmap that I've seen that is energy dense enough to support, you know, large commercial jets flying across the Atlantic Ocean. So let's talk about aviation for a minute, because I think it's actually kind of the, a perfect emblem of uh, how this battle is playing out, because it's sort of nuanced, right? So here's what my perception of what we're seeing in aviation for from a decarbonization perspective. Um, let's start from the smallest planes that go the shortest distance. The smallest planes that go the shortest distance uh, being, you know, little turboprop planes today or this emerging world of uh, VTOLs, these vertical takeoff and landing aircraft, think the flying car kind of thing. Those are getting, I, I, it's becoming clear to me that those will probably be electric, right? Battery density looks like it will be sufficient. There's a ton of activity around making those directly electric. So in the sort of smallest portion of the smallest from a, a distance and required energy density perspective um, of aviation, you know, electric, direct elect electrification seems realistic, um, albeit not there yet today. But we're starting to see like the first hybrid aircraft are already flying and there's a bunch of test flights of these kind of like two-seater or six-seater electric aircraft. We've seen startups that are pursuing everything up to a 19-seater kind of small regional turboprop plane and even a couple that are, you know, have a longer term vision for, for getting into the, a little bigger than that. Then there's this mid-range. Start with your sort of 10-seater regional turboprop up to your large 80-90-seater regional turboprop. There, you know, it's less clear whether battery technology is quite going to be sufficient in the medium term to to uh, fly one of those planes effectively. So there, there's an emerging, you know, crop around hydrogen um, to be used either in gaseous or in liquid form. Um, but the hydrogen, of course, then has the problem once you get up to the larger sizes from that, that, you know, it takes up a lot more space. It's light. 
So the density from a weight perspective is fantastic, but the density from a space perspective is not nearly as good as jet fuel, for example. So you have to have really big hydrogen storage tanks if you're going to fly really big planes, for example. And so once you get up into the jets, um, the the larger planes, then there's there appears to be more action around the sort of carbon removal, direct air capture world, where, for example, I think... Uh, United Airlines is planning to purchase a bunch of carbon removal credits um, in addition to running its planes potentially on what's called sustainable aviation fuels, which can be bio-based fuels or something else called synfuels, which I think we'll talk about again in a minute. Um, There's a possibility that battery technology could get good enough that it could scale up into these larger planes. There's a pathway toward hydrogen scaling up into these larger planes. This is a plan that Airbus has and a couple of other startups. So the battle is not over, but I think the uh, swim lanes are starting to emerge, at least in the early days. Yeah, it's a really ripe battleground. And we might end up with with three different winners for the three kind of different sizes and, and routes of, of airplanes that, that you described. Although, you know, I, I tend to think that once, once something like, say, hydrogen uh, makes its way into the, the mid-duty airline world, and if you can imagine a future where you know, airlines and airports start to build the infrastructure to, you know, deliver hydrogen to those planes, that innovation, you know, will carry something like hydrogen into the other sizes as well. That's that's not a guarantee. But, you know, oftentimes, I think in these types of sectors, you, you tend to see um, you tend to see something take over over time. Um, the other thing that you know might take over in the aviation world is direct air capture and other forms of offsets because it's easier, it's simpler for the time being, and if the airlines are part of the uh, the buying uh, consortium, the part part of the set of buyers that that is willing to pay the exorbitant costs of direct air capture today to get that industry to scale, to get the uh, the industry to ride down the cost curve. Um, then eventually it might seem less and less like the cost of retrofitting all of the infrastructure and all the planes in uh, the aviation sector for something like hydrogen and batteries seems less worthwhile if they figured out that they can do it through offsets and direct air capture. So, yeah, I, I agree with you. It, it's a pretty it's a pride, pretty wide open space. And then to complicate things further, I also think that aviation is the perfect example to describe why this may not in some cases be a competition at all. And there is actually room within the same sector for all of them. Because the other sort of area of innovation in aviation fuel world is around what people call synfuels or electrofuels. And synfuels are drop-in fuel, basically. So that's the benefit. You don't have to change the design of the plane or anything like that to accommodate them. But the way that you make synfuels is that you take hydrogen and you take captured carbon dioxide, and you run an electrochemical process, so you use electricity to turn those into a synthetic fuel. So it is literally all three of the contenders that we are describing all at once. It is taking the hydrogen and the captured (laughs) carbon and then using electricity to turn it into a fuel. Yeah, that's probably the ultimate example of uh, electricity-hydrogen CCS cooperation. Right, exactly. Uh, but, but but there are certainly others. I mean, you know, blue hydrogen, which I described earlier, is itself sort of a, a, a cooperative endeavor between carbon capture and hydrogen. I mean, you need 
you need end uses that are ready to accept hydrogen on one end, and then you need infrastructure to deal with the carbon that you're capturing on the other end. So it requires input from both of those industries. Yeah, and green hydrogen is uh, using electricity to produce hydrogen. It's using electricity to split water to produce hydrogen anyway. So these things are not mutually exclusive of each other, but I think what we do end up seeing is that a kind of at the end market, at the place where there's going to be a customer for whatever this energy source is, at that point, there's going to be a single fuel. Um, and that single fuel or source of energy is either going to be, you know, a battery or connected into the electricity grid, or it's going to be hydrogen in some form, or it's going to be some drop in fuel, or it's going to be exactly what they're using today, along with carbon capture. And that's kind of the big question of where this like battle takes place. Yeah, and I think probably one of the battlegrounds that's kind of unlike aviation in that I think it's more likely to have one dominant winner um, is heavy duty ground transport. So like long haul trucking, for example. Um, and, and I think this is going to be one of the kind of most contentious battlegrounds fought out between primarily between electrification and hydrogen or, or hydrogen, you know, some other type of synthetic fuel that's based on hydrogen. Um, you know, I'm reasonably convinced that battery technology will get to the point in the next generation, um, where it has sufficient density and fast charging capability for something approaching current commercial viability in long haul trucking. Um, the constraint for electricity, though, in, in that type of use case is going to be charging infrastructure and the electric distribution infrastructure behind it. Because if you think about it, if trucking is going to go electric, it's, it's going to have to depend on super fast charging so that you know electric long haul trucks are as close to a perfect substitute for an ICE truck as possible so that it doesn't make the route much longer. So, you know, I'm thinking probably 10 minutes of charging at worst for viability, um, which means that we're going to have chargers that are in the range of one to three megawatts a piece or higher. Um, the alternative might be some sort of network of battery swapping and slower charging stations, but, you know, that's a complex option that depends on additional technology and business model innovation. Um, so at the end of the day, the challenge for electrification and trucking is going to be delivery. You know, now the alternative hydrogen that it's going to be duking it out with, it's kind of easier to see as a, as a substitute for all of the important performance parameters that matter in terms of range and in terms of fueling speed. So hydrogen also becomes a question of infrastructure. Can we build on-site electrolyzers that are running at a really high capacity factor, and therefore they actually need less electrical distribution capacity. Um, or if the H2, if the hydrogen has to be produced off-site, how far away is it? You know, over very long distances, it's probably cheaper to build pipelines and electrical lines, but over short distances and to distributed endpoints, that might not be the case. So actually, and, and this is true across a lot of these sectors, I think one of the key takeaways for me is that the infrastructure of transmission and distribution of either electricity or hydrogen or carbon in the other direction, taking carbon away from the end uses if it's been captured and pumping it into long-term sequestration, the, the question of the cost of infrastructure and the timeline for developing that kind of infrastructure is really the big one that I think will determine in a lot of these end uses how the competition plays out over time. 
Okay, we're going to finish with a lightning round here. So we're going to go through each one of these sectors individually, and you and I both have to say, gun to your head, you got to pick one of the three contenders, which is going to win. Now, recognize that, you know, there could be multiple pathways. So I'll get, we'll each get one sector where we can name two possible winners, but otherwise you got to pick one. All right? Deal. Okay. Light and medium duty transportation. Electricity, no no question. Electricity, yeah, okay. So we start with the easy one. I agree. Space and water heat. Electricity. Electricity, agreed. Heavy-duty transportation. Heavy-duty ground transportation. I personally think electricity will win the day. I do as well. At some point, we're going to disagree. Okay, so <laughs> we've got... We've got three early winners for electricity. Now we get into the to the somewhat harder one. So really high temperature industrial heat. Industrial heat. So I, I'm torn on pretty much everything in industry, I'll admit, between some kind of hydrogen pathway and just going with a direct CCS on site. Um, and I know that's kind of a cop out here, but you get one. You get um, one cop out. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll make my cop out then high temperature sort of generic industrial heat. Hydrogen or, or capture. Okay. I'll, I'll pick hydrogen as my horse for high temperature industrial heat overall. Um, okay. Next, shipping and aviation. We'll combine them together unless you want to separate them. I'm, I'm going to go with hydrogen here. Um, and, and I'll tell you a, a little bit more on why. And this kind of has to do with, um, you know, some of the, the reasons why the best technology doesn't necessarily always win the day. And I'm not saying hydrogen isn't the best technology for those end uses. I don't know if it is or isn't. But, you know, with the European Union requiring, what is it, 40 gigawatts of, of electrolyzer capacity by the end of the decade, we're going to be producing... It's a, it's a goal, not a requirement, I should say, but nonetheless, go on. Right. right. Okay. So setting that target, we're going to be producing a lot of hydrogen and it's got to go somewhere. And I think those are just obviously the most natural sweet spots for hydrogen to play into. I also will say hydrogen with, again, the caveat, the, the category of hydrogen here is hydrogen plus things made with hydrogen. So in the case of aviation, it could be hydrogen or syn fuels. In the case of shipping, it could be hydrogen or ammonia, but I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Uh, let's combine the last three together because I think they're in a similar position. Chemicals. Uh, manufacturing, iron and steel, and cement. I'm going to say, very, like, largely speaking, CCS is going to play a role in all of those sectors. Um, I think that, and, and man, so within the steel world, iron and steel, electricity, I think, will also play a role. So I realize I'm taking two cop-outs here. Um, but, but I think dominant, you know, pretty dominant across a lot of industrial sectors, CCS is going to be important. I think electricity is going to end up playing a fairly substantial role in certainly in chemicals. Uh, I also think so in, in steel. Yeah, I think steel is one where it's a gigantic market. Probably there, there's a lot of activity on, around hydrogen steel making, particularly in Europe today. So hydrogen is going to play a role. I think electricity has a chance to play a significant role there too. So that's my cop out. I'll take iron and steel as the cop out. Um, cement seems like the greatest contender to me for CCS yeah. or CCUS rather as the, as the dominant source. And I guess we should say, I mean, in all of those end use sectors, that's an area where there there's unlikely to be a single winner. Um, because, you know, for petrochemicals, you're going to need some amount of hydrogen as a feedstock paired with carbon that's been captured from some other sector. Um, so I think we're going to start to see 
more sort of uh, linkages among these industrial end users in terms of the connectivity between their energy consumption and their output, whether it's in, in the form of carbon or hydrogen. Andy Lubershane is the SVP of Research and Strategy at Energy Impact Partners and my colleague. You can find links to the stories and research we talked about today in the show notes. Check them out. We'll also uh, link to the singular graphic that Andy made that represents the entirety of this conversation in, in one image. The Interchange is produced by Postscript Audio in partnership with Tech Media. Our senior producer is Daniel Waldorf. Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. If you want more reporting on the energy transition while you're waiting for the next episode, go over to greentechmedia.com and read what the team of journalists and analysts are covering over there. And don't forget to tell us what you thought of the conversation today. Um, the Infinity War is only beginning, so we would love to hear who you think is going to win and where. Tweet at us at, at Interchange Show or send us an email at postscriptaudio at gmail.com and send us topics you want us to talk about next. We we love taking your suggestions. Finally, do us a favor. If you like the show uh, a lot, go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating and review. Share it with a friend on social media. Uh, it helps other people learn about the show. If you didn't like it, do none of those things. And that's our show. I'm Shale Khan. This is The Interchange from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.